Welcome to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell. I'm a talent management thought partner and results coach, wife, and mom. Talent management leaders are hungry to learn from their peers and want to hear about real-life examples of successful talent projects. Talent Management Truths is for and by talent management leaders. My guests and I discuss actual successes and lessons learned from their experience in our field from a very practical, not theoretical point of view. You'll discover important insights about how to elevate your confidence and amplify your influence in a role known for being caught in the organizational middle. I'm thrilled to have you listening. So let's get going and hear the truth about talent management today. Welcome back to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell, and today my guest is Sherry Dondo. Do you dislike conflict and perhaps avoid it? Or maybe you invite it and other people find that scary. You'll find this episode very intriguing either way. Sherry is the Chief Human Resources Officer of a Canadian bank and has over 20 years as a senior executive in leading HR and talent management. She's also a certified practicing executive coach on the side. Sherry's perspective on conflict is refreshing, and she shares it in her conversation, including her candid reflection on how her own approach to conflict has evolved over the years. Sherry is a progressive and brilliant HR leader and offers numerous pieces of wisdom in this episode. I know you'll walk away with some refreshing insights. Hello, and welcome to the Talent Management Truths podcast with your host, Lisa Mitchell. That's me. I'm joined today by my lovely guest, Sherry Dondo. Sherry and I go way, way back in the Wayback Machine, worked together for a long time. She is currently the Chief Human Resources Officer for a Schedule One Canadian bank. Sherry has over 25 years broad and deep experience in HR and talent management leading both. And really her passion is around creating an authentic and inclusive culture where everybody can thrive. So with that, I'd like to welcome Sherry. Thanks so much for coming on the show with me today. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So let's begin the conversation. Perhaps you could share with the audience a little bit about your path to becoming CHRO of, of an important bank. Oh, that's a great question. I always I, I like to tell this story because there was no grand plan in my career. I stumbled into a human resources role right out of university. And it chose me, I like to say. So I stumbled into this role. I was very fortunate in that I my first job was working on pay equity, which I think dates me <laughs> a little bit, but I had a tremendous experience doing that. And from there moved into, it was a highly unionized environment and moved deliberately from there to a non-union setting in a pharmaceutical sector and progressed through there. I had a little foray for a time when I went into a communications consulting boutique firm because I wanted to experiment in a career outside of HR, but one that was aligned to making change work within organizations and step back into the HR path after that and have spent most of my career in financial services. Excellent. So so when you think about, because you've been a leader almost that entire time, what's something that strikes you when you look back at that career that you're really happy you learned early on? That's a great question as well. I think it's about being brave. For me, I was never afraid to take on 
challenges that felt like a stretch. When I think about when I started working and in the settings that I worked in, that was, I think, a little bit unique for somebody in my early 20s at the time to really, you know, step out in that way. And so I think the bravery that I've been able to muster up at different points in my career has really been the differentiator in my path. So how did it show up if I were sort of looking in through the window at you when you were in these brave moments, and I know you to be very brave and, and really a force of nature. So what would I have seen in terms of what you actually did? I think it's leading with a point of view and not backing down when met with challenge or adversity or uh, opinions, particularly of those who have a lot more tenure or maybe more senior or more authority, and just acting as if I belonged in that setting. and leading, as I said, with my with a point of view and for lack of better words, sort of like just kind of faking that I belong there. <laughs> Fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it a little bit. Yeah. Cause this is a, there are many times in my career where I, when I think back, I arguably I had no business being in those particular meetings or those settings or working on that particular project or this particular initiative, but just leaned in. Yeah. And I, I do think it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, you and I have have giggled over the years about the fact that sometimes I'll be like, OK, I need to I need to channel my inner Sherry because you helped me tap into an assertiveness and a confidence that I didn't know I was capable of early in my career. When you talk about, you know, fake it till you make it and showing up in that way, I think it's really interesting because a lot of the people I work with privately one to one in my work as a talent management thought partner, for instance, this is something that a lot of talent leaders and HR leaders can struggle with, right? Because you kind of want to please everybody because you're caught in the middle, right? You're, you're trying to serve the employees and the leaders, ensure that they have everything they need to perform the highest levels with the greatest engagement and so on. And then you're also trying to answer to the senior leadership and what they need in order to meet those key results, right? And and often hold the purse strings and the resources and so on. So it's this, it's this dance. So it can be easy, I see in people and, and in myself at times in my career to try to play it down the middle, right? And to please all, to be all things. And I'm hearing you come at that from a different angle. Well, it hasn't always been easy and it may not have always been the, the best choice and, and something I have learned over time to to be a little bit more selective about. There are times when being assertive and aggressive with your position is the right thing to do, and there are times when that doesn't work. And that probably was one of the biggest transitions in my career, was understanding how that you know, sort of natural trait that I had wasn't serving me. And so being more selective about when to pull that out and when to be much more collaborative and step back and listen more. And and those those are hard lessons to learn. And something that for me came with a lot of time and a lot of different experiences that sort of led me to understand that what's worked for me in the past is not necessarily what's going to work for me going forward and really doing a lot of inner work to sort of figure out what does bravery look like if it's not coming through as aggression or assertion. So that I'll just say. And then and then certainly as it relates to walking the middle line, I'm not suggesting I've learned to walk the middle line because I for me it's more about having leading with a point of view and being more collaborative in how you get there. I find in my experience and a lot of the HR people I've known over my 
career have less point of view sometimes. And I feel like it's a mindset that we we teach ourselves in HR, as you suggest, to be, you know, a little bit more pleasing or pleasing. Or, yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. But I don't think that's what organizations need. I think organizations need somebody to, you know, really hold the mirror up and to challenge assumptions and to to think differently and to have a point of view about people and organizational dynamics and, and what makes a business successful that's different than what a sales leader might look to or marketing or any other part of the organization. We really have this unique opportunity in HR and as talent leaders to to share this perspective. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I think that it's incumbent upon us, right? To be bold and speak up and have that voice to own it. And it sounds like you struck a balance, certainly bringing that voice, that opinion, leading with that in a collaborative way. For me, I kind of started with the collaborative and everybody's like, she's so nice with trying to, you know, it was the other way, right? Adding in the assertiveness, the confidence piece to be able to bring that voice to the table and be heard. So it's it's really fascinating, but it's it's something, there, it's iterative, isn't it? Over time, as you keep practicing, and I know as a professional coach yourself, I know that you must bring this particular insight when you're working with the executives you serve now in your other job. In my other job, absolutely. It, it is, a, there's no right or wrong way. It's just about having as many, as much versatility as you you can in terms of how you approach things. I mean, organizations demand collaboration now. You can't get anything done without having uh, an inclusive process and ensuring that you have an agile approach to the work that you're developing and that you're you're inviting all the voices to the table. So that is a that's an expectation and, and a requirement. And the skill and that your personal strengths and how you use them or how you deploy them is the magic that either that each individual brings, right? So, you know, what works for one person isn't going to work the same for somebody else. So I, I, I think that it's about understanding your strengths and knowing the versatility of them and how and when to deploy them, at least when I work with clients and other executives, you know, that's what the focus of the conversation usually is about. How do you dial up one capability and dial back others when they're not yeah. serving? Situationally, yeah. yeah Absolutely. Depending on what the situa- situation really, really needs for best impact. Excellent. So, you know, you mentioned to me when we were chatting earlier too that you had recalled, because you just talked about innovation, for instance, and collaboration, when the CEO of a company where you used to be had put something out saying, we need to be more innovative. And it prompted quite a significant body of work. Could you fill us in on that? Absolutely. Thank you for asking about that. It, it's a fascinating study. And in, in fact, if I ha- ever had ambitions to do a doctorate, I think this kind of a, an effort would be a fascinating one to dive into even more. But as with many organizations, you know, this organization was struggling with becoming more innovative and, uh, and a large global organization across multiple many different countries and cultures and languages. There was a strong belief that, you know, if we just say, let's be more innovative, we put in you know, innovation activities and projects that the culture will shift. And as talent leaders, we know that's not true, (laughs) but that we had an interesting opportunity because we had just been working through development process for our global leaders. And as part of that series of development activities, we had done 
number of psychometric assessments. And so we took a look at the, what the data was showing us and analyzed the data and found that the most common traits amongst our leader population were things that were not conducive to innovation. You know, the culture was, you know, risk averse and collegial versus collaborative and just other attributes that were not necessarily the attributes that naturally lend itself to an innovation it being an innovative culture. So what was the impact? Like, what did you see on the ground that, that told you it was not innovative? Well, just the, the speed of change of t- at times, the amount of effort that went into maintaining the status quo, the fear of taking risks, that failing was never celebrated, right? Mm-hmm. So, Can't learn know, from a failure. <laughs> yes. And, and so just all of those things, which is very typical in most mature organizations. But what was particularly interesting about this effort is the data was compelling. And when you can show the executive suite that they themselves and their leaders are fundamentally hardwired to be, to have traits that are not conducive to innovation, you know, how successful can we be when we're forcing this way of being that was not natural? So instead of saying, let's be more innovative, we started to introduce efforts across our talent programs to understand and recognize and, you know, even attract different types of individuals that were less adverse to conflict and more ready to take risks and understood the difference between collaboration and conflict. Healthy conflict is good. Collegiality doesn't necessarily breed collaboration. And and so, you know, there's a very, it became a much more nuanced conversation around behavior and, and leadership expectations. So, so that was a, that was a fascinating it sounds like it. So I, I think it's interesting that in the in the messaging and how you talked about it, you moved away from we must drive innovation, which was probably remained the outcome you were going, you were shooting for, right, over the long term, and focused instead on, you know, probably the mix of people. But what were some of the initiatives that came like how did that strategy though come to life? What kinds of things did you implement beyond sort of changing the hiring mix over time? Well, one thing is the CEO understood that just asking people to be more innovative was not necessarily going to work. So the language of even the way he spoke about innovation shifted. It became, he started to talk about, okay, we need to be more risk tolerant. We need to understand that risk taking is not a bad thing. And, you know, we want to you know, we want to do that and we want to be more, you know, we need, we need conflict. So we did a lot of work on what is, what does conflict look like? And conflict is not a four letter word, right? right? So how do we make it work for us? So was it through, like through training, through coaching, like how did you support people yes. in starting to really fundamentally understand that? So that was sort of so, the first step. And then we, we edited our core values to bring in more of that the language around innovation and risk and, 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 and the like of that. And then so the core values were integrated and that became part of the performance system. We also looked at those attributes in developing succession plans. So it sort of was threaded through multiple talent programs. Yeah, I call it the embed and thread exactly. kind of method, right? That's kind of the language I like because it's, you know, starting with the CEO, right, and his messaging and the whole concept of, you know, let's have a common language and make sure everybody really gets it. Yes. And I think that the point I'd like all of us as talent leaders to understand, you know, most, most of us work very hard at this is like conversation became easy because we had data. 
an analysis to support it. And, you know, I think HR has come so far in terms of being able to have good, relevant business metrics and data and 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 the workaround analysis is, is harder. And so when you can bring forward, you know, credible analyses that prove or disprove assumptions, that goes a long way with with leaders to get that buy-in. So so that's actually buy-in is a really key theme in my in my work. One-on-one coaching with with leaders of all different areas of disciplines, like not just talent management. Building buy-in, influencing people is comes up all the time as a topic. And so what I'm hearing from you is buy-in, bringing that data, having compelling data, painting that, that data story, if you will, is really, really important. What are some other tips you have? You know, if you were to sit down and mentor me or train me right now and say, okay, at least this is how you've got to build buy-in, what would you tell me? What are your tips? So this is something I've certainly, you know, has shifted over the years too. But what I would say to you today would be don't do anything in a vacuum. So if you're building a new program or bring, invite people in, take a design thinking approach to how you develop products and services. Be agile. Don't go away in a laboratory and build it for 18 months and come out with a finished product. Like just be a much, have a much more open, iterative collaborative uh, approach that have the employee or the end user in mind, ensure that you are communicating as much and as often as people will hear you or listen to you. You can never over communicate these, these kinds of programmatic efforts. Yeah. And with that common language and, and really making sure everybody's clear on the context, the why, what's behind this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause I think the data is something that we all know how important it is. And oftentimes, you know, I see people are so overwhelmed with the amount of meetings, meetings, meetings and yes. demands on their time and so on. It's easy enough to come up with your evaluation strategy piece and your original strategy and then never come back to measure impact and prove impact. And I find that that's a major mistake because when people don't circle back to say, hey, here's what we did with that pilot or that initiative or that implementation, here's what we learned as a result in the the actual impact as measured. If we don't circle back, then the next time we go to get buy-in, there's potentially less opportunity for success, right? Because you haven't been able to show how the last one worked or didn't work. That's right. Well, and certainly data in the HR space has been hard to get at. And, you know, it's getting easier now. They're with data visualization tools and the advent of data lakes and the opportunity to integrate, you know, very disparate information. It's getting easier, but it's, if you're in a smaller organization, which I am in now, or, you know, don't have the sort of analytical capability within your organization, it's still very hard. And and the traditional HR systems, they're coming along, but they're not they're not evolved enough yet. And so to get really interesting and in- informative information, you still need to have a way to manipulate it that's uh, that's outside of core HR systems, which is which is always challenging for HR because that kind of effort costs money, a lot of money. And it's hard sometimes to get the funding, even to have the business case to get the funding to invest in data analytics from an HR perspective. When you have such significant experience implementing new new systems, new HRIS systems and LMS, and we've worked together on a few of those way back, what would you say has been the most significant positive shift when it comes to talent management systems and so on that, that's, that's enabled better 
I don't know whether it's data analytics or better impact. What what's I think I think that a couple of years ago I, I kind of it dawned on me that suddenly HR was paperless, dare I say. I mean, it yeah. felt all of a sudden like we didn't need reams of paper anymore to do the work of HR, which was wonderful. That was a bit of a, a an awakening for me to say, hey, we are actually pretty paperless. And I think what's allowed us to do that is that the bigger systems now, you know, understand talent management more and are giving you more op- options around tracking talent indicators and succession plans and talent pools and, you know, more of the things that we used to do, you know, on lists and paper, you know, nine box reviews and things like that. That's all coming and present in many systems and coming in the smaller ones. So so I think the the understanding of how data integrates and from an HR systems perspective and what's needed from a talent management space, it's it's really evolving. I mean in the past it was always payroll and employee data. And if you're lucky you had some training components and thank goodness those days are are long gone <laughs> yeah 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 so you have a much bigger picture d to picture of everything yeah and it's more at your fingertips paperless though wow yes i never thought it's you pretty know, exciting the day. but it is <laughs> it's crazy you know what you're you can have so much just readily available to try to figure out you know look for large division succession planning where are the holes okay what, what's what do we have going on for the talent do you remember doing talent profiles begging yes. leaders to fill those out way back in yes. the day yeah Yes, and now it's a click of a button and you get a talent card that gives you all the relevant information. Maybe click of the buttons, maybe a little bit optimistic, but a couple of clicks of a couple of buttons and you can get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we've come a long way, baby. Absolutely. We really have. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Okay. All right. Well, let's shift our focus a little bit. I'm curious about who mentored you along the way. You've mentored all kinds of leaders, myself included. Who mentored you? And where did you get support? So thank you for that question. I, I, I like to talk about somebody I was introduced to many, many years ago when I worked in a pharmaceutical company. And uh, this gentleman was uh, really my first experience with, with a really very sophisticated OD leader. And he was OD at the time, not OE or any other <laughs> name at the, at that time. And he had come in from with a t- tremendous amount of experience from other organizations. And he, w- he, he came in and the way he just introduced, one of the ver- first things he did is he, he said, why are we doing all this training? The business needs to train their people. So let's train the trainer and such a basic concept in today's mindset, but back then it was pretty radical. And the way he, you know, he had a real teach the business to fish mindset. And he was not about building a fiefdom of OD people. It was around, let's bring a few experts in. We train the business how to do this. We we help them, we mentor them, we get them set up and we and we can disappear. He was a mentor to me partly because of his the way he approached his work and I hadn't seen anybody approach work in quite that way before. But he was probably the first person who took me aside and said, you can do more. So what, uh, what which, did you mean by that? Well at that time I was in a you know more of a like a comp and benefits kind of thing. And he said, you're wasting away over there, (laughs) which only because I had been doing it for so long, not because it's not a valid, in fact, that's still my first love. I love anything to do with benefits. I get all excited and I love it. But that's, it's just, he felt like I'd been there too long and I needed to to shift and learn something new. And so, you know, he made it happen for me. He negotiated on my behalf and I was allowed to do 
kind of straddle and take on a bunch of new OD type work. And she was just a really warm and caring and smart as a whip <laughs> gentleman. He went on to the world, uh, oh, I'm going to say the world, world bank. He went on to the world bank oh, wow. after, after that. And I think he's long since retired, but yeah, just an incredible individual. Yeah. I, I, that phrase, teach the business to fish, I think is so interesting, right? Because again, you know, I think it's easy when you're in HR talent to most people in our line of work are service oriented, right? They want to be a service generally, want to contribute, see possibility so easily. And so it's easy to take on more than you need to, right? And, and a lot of times busy leaders, and, and I, I'm not saying this because they're bad, but they're busy people and they will allow HR, talent, OD, they will abdicate their responsibility for leadership to those folks, right? And, and, and so it's like sometimes the line gets crossed. So it sounds like he was the avant-garde as far as like, how do we enable, how do we help leaders actually do the work they're accountable to do, right? How do we set them up for success and support them, not do the work for them, especially when it comes to some of the the trickier stuff, the the tricky conversations and so on. Right. And he, you know, he believed that so much that he, if people push back on that approach, he would simply not do the work. Like he believed in it so strongly that he's like, no, I'm not going to do this for you. If you're not prepared to invest in this, we're not doing it together. And to me, I mean, I just hadn't heard anybody talk that way from HR before him. Yeah. Interesting. Can you think of anybody else that's kind of been impactful on on your l- learning or career or somebody more recently, perhaps? So the, this one's hard to talk about a little bit. So in 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 one of my organizations, there, I you know I learned a tremendous amount from somebody and ultimately got promoted, and it was it was an interesting dynamic because we weren't in the same part of the organization, and then we became close peers. You know, I learned a tremendous amount from this person watching how they developed relationships across the business. And so I would I would suggest that that person was also a mentor, but insofar as how to socialize, you know, HR products and services and how to really get buy-in, uh, the reach that this person had within the business was tremendous, constant networking. This person's networking skills was off the charts. When you say networking, a lot of people think that means walking into a room and handing out business cards. What did it look like for this person internally networking? Right. So this was an organization that had, as I mentioned it earlier, across multiple countries and quite a large organization and really taking the time and keeping, I I don't know how this person did it, but keeping track of the key partners and going through a regular update process like constantly, I, I don't think they ever took a break. If they had a moment of time, they were reaching out to somebody they hadn't connected with in a while to really check in, understand their business outside of their purview, like not afraid to sort of reach outside of their own area that they were accountable for to develop relationships. And I, I just thought this was a masterful person at this work. Yeah, because it sounds like not transactional in terms no. of approach, but really really relational. Yes. Yeah, and that would go a long way to buy in. So in terms of socializing, getting buy in, your style is going to be different, right? What you admired about them would look and feel different as you incorporate. What What was the one kind of behavior that you shifted as you watched and admired this person that, that's helped you? It's really about taking the time to really listen and introduce new ideas and new concepts slowly and give people time to digest and think about that. 
you can never spend enough time on ensuring that you've got those lateral relationships in an organization because they can ultimately make or break the success of the work that you and your team are trying to accomplish. It reminds me of Patrick Lencioni's first when he talks about five dysfunctions of a team and the use of the first team concepts so of who's your first team and who do who does your team expect you to be spending your time with and it's not with them it's with it's with your lateral peers and across the organization because that will enable their work to be more successful i think it was sort of seeing that in action really has stuck with me in fact i use this story and that concept a lot with people that I'm coaching now because I think it's, you know, it's so important. It's so easy to forget that you need to spend your time working laterally and building those relationships and taking care of them over time. Taking care of them, Mm -hmm. right. Because it's easy just to stay in that transaction, you know, on that transaction hamster wheel, isn't it? Absolutely. And focus down, you know, focus down on your team. Like uh, we're so, we're trained as leaders, like your primary responsibility is your team. Your team can't be successful if the ground is not fertile for the work to be planted and and to grow. Yeah. So I imagine that was helpful for you, too, when you came into your current role, right? Really trying to take on a team and and set it up for success, really being, you know, I've heard you tell stories like taking being conscious of of how do I make that work here in this different, different place? I think it's it was it was an example and an observation, a tangible real life moment that for me was timely because I was coming to appreciate that, you know, some of the way that I was getting work done in my past was not necessarily the way it was going to work going forward. So that the evolution of my own way of being and thinking and at the same time going through my own coach training and doing a lot more introspection on who I was and who I was becoming and being more thoughtful about how I approached work and relationships. And it, it, it was a good time to have this example because it helped to solidify and culminate a lot of the, I think, the evolution. Yeah. And I mean, we're evolving all the time from the beginning of our career, but I think, you know, after certain time, you do become a little more introspective right at that kind of middle part of your life, shall we call it, where you start to sort of think, well, who do I want to be or become, right? You know, you're a little more open to it or I don't know what it is about about the stage in what, the game. And I've come to, I have a I have a hypothesis. I can't prove it, but I feel like there's a, organizations expect you to be a certain way, especially when you've been in one for uh, a length of time. So the things that you've you've grown up being and how you come across and the behaviors and the the reputation that you have, there's a lot invested in an organization to kind of reinforce that. And so even if you're trying to, you know, change, evolve into something different, it's hard to do within an organization because there's a lot, as, as I said, a lot of effort that goes into keeping it the same. So I think it's hard to do. Especially when you're in that sort of moment where you want to evolve or you feel like you've shifted and no one's seeing it. In fact, you know, I used to, when I was, when it was happening for me, I would say, oh, they would describe, I hear myself being described in ways like, well, yeah, I would agree that used to be me. I don't think that way anymore. Right. And so right. there's one, there's, it's hard to sort of, I don't know, just show up with that different mindset. When you're in the same environment. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine and to, to see if people are going to allow you to step into that new way of being and thriving. I talk about that uh, as part of when I when I talk to 
new clients for coaching clients. Uh, yeah, Perry, that's resonating a lot with people, you know, who you, who you are becoming and who the organization expects you to be are not always aligned. You know what it makes me think of too is, is I, I'm sure you've seen everywhere you look now, people writing and talking about the Cree resignation. Yes. These throngs of people that are suddenly quitting work and whatever that looks like, switching careers or going on their own or whatever it might be, all walks of life too. And, and it's, it's, you know, it makes you sort of think, Jesus, these last 18 months, a lot of it at home in isolation, it's caused people to sort of think, well, huh, who have I been being, you know, what, what's next, right? It sort of gave that pause, that maybe space to, to open up to other possibility. It's, it's, I think it's scary for organizations and ex- exciting for individuals too. <laughs> Absolutely. That is <laughs> yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm, I'm fascinated to see how it nets out. Right. Cause I know a lot of organizations that I talk to are really struggling. And my current employment employer too would be struggling. It's, it's, it's hard. People, people want change. They want something to change. Something needs to change. I don't know what that is. Cause it's my, job it's my setting it's my my routines something needs to change so people are you know shaking it up yeah and, it's and a restlessness mm-hmm. yeah a big restlessness happening all right well so before we we kind of come to a conclusion i'd love to to switch gears and ask you one other question which is what do you see as the biggest opportunity for talent managers today talent management leaders in terms of how they can impact their organizations I think that understanding culture in any way is really important. When you think about what an inclusive culture looks like and how to how to influence belonging in organizations, I think that, you know, it's no longer the work of the diversity office. It's the work of people who do the work we do. It's about talent. It's about how do we engage with our people? How do we how do we influence our leaders to behave in a much more inclusive way? How do we nurture a culture that is one of belonging and that people feel like they can bring their whole selves to work every day and work is shifting. So how do we stay on top of all of these cultural nuances and and changes. I think the world of work is at a crossroads. And we talked about that just a moment ago. And I don't think we really understand yet what the next 10 or 15 years of work is going to look like. And so the work of talent professionals like ourselves is going to be around how do you understand that? How do you understand all of that culture that's not observable and what what is happening underneath the waterline so that you can really help create a safe passage for organizations as their culture changes and evolves because it will change. It's going yeah. to change. And how so, do you support them through absolutely. that? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be a little choppy at times <laughs> in that in that water before we kind of get to the other side. So yeah, it's 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 gonna be it's gonna be interesting to watch what what happens in the next couple of years. Certainly, I, I agree with the crossroads observation. Absolutely, it's fascinating. But it's a, I think it's a good time to be in HR and talent management. You know, better than ever because the opportunity. While there's so many of them, it can be scary. I think it, it's also boundless. Right? There's so much you can do to impact the working lives of thousands, millions of people overall, right? Like it, it really is like we have that, that power in these roles. I I totally agree. And, and I think to be really effective, we can't rest on our laurels because just as we've suggested the world of work is changing. 
So will the work of HR professionals and talent professionals, right? So we need to be very, I don't know, experimental, interested, crave new learning, new to get ahead of or tried, at least if not get ahead, at least keep pace with how work is shifting. Traditional methods, traditional ways of getting work done are not going to cut it. Yeah. Keep your eyes open. Be curious. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Sherry, for spending time with me today on the show. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I know our listeners will as well. So thank you very much. Thank you, Lisa. It's my pleasure. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your colleagues. Better yet, head over to iTunes and let us know. When you subscribe and leave me a five-star review, not only do I glow from within, but more people will learn about the show and why they should listen. Oh, and each month, I'll select one lucky reviewer to receive their free personal True Tilt profile. Until next time, keep telling the talent management truth. <laughs>